Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast, powered by Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, episode number 202, Cole Reed, stewards of the wildlife, hunting with conservation. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Today's show is sponsored by Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, Covert Scouting Cameras, The Horny Buck Seed Company, The Eurohanger, and Morse's Sporting Goods. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. Hi, this is Dan Infold from HuntingBeast.com. You're about to listen to one of my favorite podcasts, Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. Hey y'all, this is Heather Shepard with To Be Outdoors and the Dixie Deer Classic. You are about to tune in to my favorite podcast, The Big Buck Registry. I'm James Wagenbeckler from Open Season TV, and you're about to listen to my favorite podcast, The Big Buck Registry. Welcome to another episode of The Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. And here in the studio with my good buddy Dusty Phillips in our Ohio studios, and I'm in New Hampshire. And we're kicking off another great interview here. So what's going on, Dusty? Oh, man, just living the dream, you know. Another great podcast. Appreciate everybody tuning in with us every week. It just continues to get better, Jay, and we appreciate that. It does. I'm going to jump right into an email we got from Trevor. He's in Maine, and this is relative to our harness program. And Trevor writes, love the sh- love show 200. Wow. I am in dire need of a safety harness. I used the platform stand about 3x3 three three and 20 feet off the ground. It was on a property when I moved here. I sit in a folding chair on it. I have an old cable guy harness that is too small and has way too much metal rings to clang around. Problem is, budget doesn't allow me to get a new one. If you still have any, I would be forever grateful. Keep up the great work. Thank you for your time. By the way, I'm an XXL. So uh, thank you, Trevor, for your your letter. Uh, We will drop a harness in the mail to you. I don't know if they come in various sizes. I think we just have one adult size, but I'll ship one out to you. And uh, thank you for your email. It's a pretty good email. Yeah, very good. Appreciate him reaching out to us, and uh, best of luck in the Whitetail Woods this year. Dusty, what do you think about when you think about conservation? Well, you know, there's there's all different uh, aspects to conservation. You know, it's it's not only uh, lands management, or a lot of people look at it as just land management, or it's you know it's healthy herds, it's habitat, it's uh, food sources. There's all kinds of uh, different uh, viewpoints of conservation. Today's guest is a heavy duty conservationist. He spends a lot of time with the white rhino, and the white rhinos horn is particularly sought out after by the far east in the ancient medicinal practices so there's a deep-rooted underground black market type of structure to and big dollars for this kind of stuff and it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon so he's trying to figure out how to balance the almost lack of conservation efforts and the lack of hunting efforts that are going on in South Africa with this to the point where the the numbers have dwindled down to about 18,000 in the world or so. He is trying to start a herd of 2,500 in Texas so that when and if, or if and when, 
the population gets so far below where it really should be that they have essentially a starter culture where they can tap back into the DNA that was once there and repopulate areas and in hopes that the the conservation built in with the hunting efforts can get better where it's at and hopefully somehow in the future change the the demand for the rhino horn. So we decided to have Cole Reed on the show and we're we're going to talk to Cole but not in, in just the sense of the white rhino, we're talking about global concepts regarding conservation and how much hunting needs conservation and how much conservation needs hunting and how they typically go hand in hand until populations drop so low because of mismanagement and mispractice. And we, we talk even about uh, the deer herd in, in the United States. So uh, Cole is actually a pretty hardcore deer hunter. He's, he says he's killed many a deer. And when I asked him about his most memorable deer hunt, he goes, oh, man, there's so many. So he's not just your conservationist like you might think of. He's thinking in a global sense, thought-wise, but also globally, physically-wise, about how all this stuff is pieced together. Let's uh, turn over to Jim Keller with the deer news, and we'll come back with Cole Reed. The deer news this week is sponsored by the Eurohanger. You don't have to spend big bucks to hang your big buck. Get yourself a Eurohanger. Facebook.com forward slash Eurohanger, E-U-R-O-H-A-N-G-E-R. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the deer news. Our first story this week, Coyote Challenge offers Georgia hunters prizes for kills. This story was featured in the Forsyth County News website. More than 160 coyotes have been killed across the state since the Georgia Department of Natural Resources Coyote Challenge started in April. The challenge allows hunters and trappers the chance to win a lifetime sporting license by harvesting up to five coyotes each month and presenting the carcass at a DNR field office. Each kill counts as one entry in the monthly raffle, and so far more than 40 people have participated. Coyotes are now present in large numbers in every county in Georgia, according to Tina Johansson, Program Operations Manager at the DNR's Wildlife Resource Division. They range from 15 to 30 pounds and usually travel in packs. The challenge lasts until August and was intended to make news and inform property owners about their rights, given that coyotes are unprotected, invasive animals who prey on calves, chicken, and other livestock and pets. DNR plans to continue its coyote challenge from April to August next year, Johansson said. That covers fawning seasons for deer and nesting season for turkeys, when coyotes can do the most damage to game populations. The department is considering changing the program to increase participation next year to allow hunters and trappers to submit timestamp photos of their kills instead of requiring them to bring a carcass to a DNR office. DNR estimates that deer hunters kill about 75,000 coyotes, which can be heavy predators of fawn during the course of the deer season. Despite the huge culling every year, coyotes keep coming back. In the long run, Georgians will have to learn to live with the predators. This is about management, not annihilation, said Tina Johansson, the program operations manager at the DNR's Wildlife Resource Division. City to keep using bow hunters to thin deer in Cincinnati's parks. This story was originally featured on the Cincinnati.com website and was reported by Mark Wirt. Bow hunters will once again be allowed into 10 Cincinnati parks this year amid evidence that the 10-year program has sharply reduced the deer population in Mount Airy Forest. In addition, the parks are considering adding more deer exclusions or fences to keep the animals out. Deer pose a threat to the flora of the city parks, especially Mount Air and California Woods Nature Preserve, park officials say. The two numerous animals eat wildflowers such as trilliums and tree seedlings down to the ground. This cuts back on undergrowth and limits the forest, the future forest canopy, both of which can be important animal habitats. The destruction of beneficial plants also can allow invasive species to take over. 
In 2016, 157 hunters killed 139 deer in city parks. Just over half were taken at Mount Airy, which at almost 1,500 acres is Cincinnati's largest park. Mount Airy was established in 1911 out of several unproductive farms and was the first municipal reforestation in America. Aerial surveys of Mount Airy show the deer population is down 70% from its peak in 2001 before the hunting program began. The other parks in the hunting program are Alms, Alt, Drake, Glenway Woods, Magrish Perry, Miles Edward, Seymour Preserve, and Stanbury. The program, which has culled a total of 1,354 deer from the 10 parks, started with sharpshooters from the Cincinnati police. After two years, volunteer bow hunters were brought in. The program requires closing some trails in the parks in late September and early October, but park officials limit closures to certain days and hours so people wanting to see the changing foliage colors can use the parks in safety and the hunters can operate without other human distractions. Night hunting was allowed in, at four parks in February. As pythons invade Florida, professional snake hunting becomes booming industry. This story was originally featured on the Fox Science News website and was reported by Phil Keating. In a state known more for its alligators, there is a new job title, Pro Python Hunter. An estimated 100,000 pythons are living in and ravaging Florida's Everglades. They will eat at least 160 animals in five years and have no enemies. Even alligators are no match for the Burmese python. A 13-footer caught and killed recently had three baby deer in its belly. The invasive snakes got here after pet owners ditched them in the swamps, and over the years, they have multiplied exponentially. Florida Fish and Wildlife said the pythons have decimated the state's small animal population. In Miami-Dade County, the South Florida Water Management District decided Florida's python problem has become so big and so bad, paying for a quote-unquote python posse to find and kill them could be the answer. It's a two-month, $175,000 pilot program. 25 python hunters get paid $8.10 an hour to drive, hike, and crawl in the hot and humid Everglades looking for snake dens and wrestling the big beast to the death. In seven weeks, the 25 pros have killed and removed 149 pythons. The longest one was a 16-footer. Most are in the 7, 8, and 9-foot range. The hunters also get $50 for every snake they bag, and for each foot longer than four, there's an additional $25. Florida has twice held well-publicized python challenges where 1,500 amateur snake hunters from around the country put their wrangling skills to the test. But Water Management District Dan O'Keefe said using the 25 experts and paying them is proving to be much more effective. About half the pythons captured and killed were females, and when each female can lay 40 eggs per clutch, that translates into thousands of additional baby pythons that will now never be born in the vastness that is the Florida Everglades. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry Deer News. For links to the stories found this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas for future topics or have questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Thanks to Jim Keller with the Deer News. Without further ado, here's Cole Reed. Cole Reed, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you, my friend? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing well, man. It's uh, We had some thunder boomers uh, roll through here just recently and kicked us off the ball fields and got me home early for a little preparation to talk conservation with you good yeah we've actually been having quite a bit of weather ourselves um one of our most recent conservation projects is actually the uh, we've installed some live stream video cameras one of them's gone in our reticulated giraffe barn for that breeding program and another one's gone in the lemur atrium and uh 
had a little bit of a windstorm knock down our giraffe camera. So we're going to get the lemur atrium one up on the website here pretty soon. But uh, everybody's just going to have to wait on us for a little bit until we get the giraffe one back online from the wind. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, we're having some, some lemur uh, video problems. Right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll have to get that corrected. Speaking of where of, of cameras and location, where are you from, Cole? So I'm originally, uh, I was actually born in Arizona, but I only spent three weeks of my life there. I really grew up in New Mexico, uh, but it's one of those stories where I got to Texas as quick as I could and I haven't looked back. And uh, so now I currently live in Uvalde, Texas, which is about 90 miles west of San Antonio. Okay. What drew you there? Uh, it's the, the ranch. Uh, it was a family uh, ranch that we we'd had for a long time. And, uh, you know, I, I was one of those people that grew up in New Mexico, hunting, fishing. Uh, I mean, I just grew up in the mountains and as if I could get outdoors, that's where I'd be. I, I, I was one of those guys that would miss, uh, homework assignments and tests, uh, for that big hunt or that, that big trip that I could take and be outdoors. Uh, and so I, I always had a connection to it and I actually came down after high school and spent about two years just working on the property before I went to college, just really trying to figure out what I wanted to do and, and, and realize that this is 100% what I want to dedicate my life to. So went wow. back to, uh, went back up North for about three, four years, uh, got a degree from Texas A&M university, and then came back down here and started my life. No kidding. All right. That's very cool. Yeah. What, yeah. uh, who was your biggest influence growing up, uh, as, uh, relative to conservation and hunting? You know, it, it, it really, if, if there had to be one person, it'd be my father. Uh, okay. he's the guy that, that took us out and, 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 uh, he's the one that I shared all those adventures with. And, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing, the position that I'm at now. Um, there's no question, um, hunting's role in conservation. I'm a hunter and I'm a, and I'm a conservationist and I'm proud to say both of those things, but I'm, I've kind of moved away from the hunting industry as a whole. Right. And I'm focusing more on the conservation side of the industry. And it was him that really helped me lead me to that. We just had this ranch for so long. And I guess, you know, some of it may stem from the fact that these are our animals now. Now it's it's our charge of taking care, taking care of them on a day-to-day basis and feeding them and medicating them and raising them. And then, you know, you go out and you, you harvest one and you harvest the old uh, reproductively insignificant males of the herd that have been kicked out that that are not going to reproduce anymore and and you turn money out of that animal that goes directly back into getting more animals increasing the genetic diversity of that herd increasing the herd size increasing the increasing the number of species that you have on property all of all of that is important but it became more and more difficult for us to see that one harvested and we wanted to spend more time making sure that they were alive right you know, so that's kind of where, where I am now. I, I'm still a hunter. I, I still absolutely support hunting, uh, but but I'm doing everything I can to keep them alive at this point. Gotcha. It's an interesting dynamic because you know, you're coming out of the hunting industry. That's, you know, that's where you think all the focus is. But there's really another group that's just as important, and that's the conservationist side of hunting. And it seems to me that you, or you can't have one without the other. You have to well, have yes. both. Yeah, exactly. I, I would agree with that. And, yeah. 
and and I've told people before, you know, <laughs> I mean, you could you could easily get into the very definition of trophy hunting. Uh, that's an argument that I have with a lot of people, especially on a horned animal. Uh, horned animals start growing their horns when they're born, and they continually grow them until they die. Right. So and and they don't stop. They just keep growing, growing, growing. So if you have an animal that is the biggest, it's because he's the oldest. And a lot of times in the wild, because nature's not as nice as we are, the oldest ones have been kicked out of the herd. They're living on their own or in a bachelor group, and they're reproductively insignificant to the herd. Mm. Now, if you have a hunter that goes out and shoots that animal just because of the size of his horns, and that's all that's in his heart and his mind, that may not be a good thing. But whether he likes it or not, by doing that, he has been involved with conservation. The money that he spent, the reproductively insignificant male that he's removed from the herd in an ethical manner, instead of it dying of starvation or being eaten to death by a lion. I mean, you know, it's it. it so I, I agree with you. There's the two have to be interconnected. And, and sometimes even if you don't, your focus isn't conservation, whether you like it or not, you're involved with conservation. Right. So not only do the two need to go to, together, they always do go together. Yeah. It's, it's, I think <laughs> so. sometimes we kind of, we kind of forget that we're, yeah. we're doing that. Um, right. But, but there's, but I, there's also a, a group I'm sure that knows they're involved heavily because, For sure. because they spent their money on equipment and on licensing and travel and all that stuff. You know, that they're definitely some direct paths to conservation through the money that the hunter spends. For sure. And, and, and I would say that the vast majority of hunters are in that category right. are people that, that know that they're part of conservation and believe they're part of conservation and, and have a desire to be a part of conservation. I, I'd say that's the vast majority right. of hunters. Right. Exactly. So when you were growing up, I'm just, I don't mean to change subjects and I'm not, no. I, I got, what was the, this was this kind of our, one of our classic questions that we like to ask our guests. What, do you remember the first firearm or weapon that you ever shot? Yeah, yes, I do. Actually, it was a twenty-two Ruger. Well, yeah, first I, firearm, I should say, because I grew up shooting BB guns and pellet guns. But uh, it was a twenty-two Ruger pistol that we'd go out into the Mesa in New Mexico and and shoot beer cans and Coke cans and stuff like that. I think I was probably five years old at that time. Gotcha. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think those are special moments. That, uh, it was. Yeah, I still remember. Because I, I remember them. You know, exactly. I'm, I'm almost thirty years old, and I still remember that 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 experience. Yeah, so. we all seem to remember the first gun we ever shot. Yeah, I don't know why, yeah. why exactly, but that we do. The, yeah. the make, model, and, and you know, age usually. Of yeah, firearm. and who gave yeah. it to you? Who, who was there? It was with my you? dad. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's cool. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit about the stewards of wildlife. I can tell you are a conservationist through and through and that you have uh, aptly connected hunting to conservation and vice versa and that you get it. And you have some efforts and you're connected to some groups that I think are pretty interesting. And I want to get into a lot of the, the, the trips that you've been on recently, because it sounds like you're going well beyond the, the whitetail. I mean, this stuff. Yes, yeah, and, for sure. And you were talking in generalities just a, a little bit ago about, you know, taking the, the oldest out of the herd. And that, that applies to more than just the whitetail. I would assume that applies yes. to, you know, that's, a, that's a generality that all hunters can relate to. And it doesn't matter to the species for the most part. Right. Okay. Right. So tell me about the Stewards of Wildlife. What is that organization? How are you connected to it? Yeah, so Stewards of Wildlife, I'm the Director of Wildlife Sustainability. 
And Stewards of Wildlife is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that's really dedicated to breeding, raising, and propagating species, both here in the United States as well as abroad. So there's two different types of uh, conservation. There's in-situ conservation, which is in-country, which is their native lands, and then there's ex-situ conservation, which is what we do on our property, which is you know breeding non-native animals. In, in a different location. So okay. we support both of those. We currently own three Southern white rhinos that are living in South Africa. Stewards of Wildlife owns them. We're caring for them. Uh, and they're going to stay there. And then the big project that we're working on right now, probably the biggest project is we're trying to import six Southern white rhinos from South Africa to Texas. Okay. Uh, and that's a programmatic um idea that we have that hopefully will expand in the future. The goal is to have 2,500 individuals of the Southern white rhino in United States of America at, at, at some point in the future. So that doesn't mean that we're going to try to import 2,500. It means that through breeding and trading and, and increasing the herds and the importation, that will have that 2,500 number, which is what the scientists have told us is the number that we need to have that species uh, maintain evolutionary potential mm, Okay, is that 2,500. So the plight of the rhino, it's going downhill. We all have seen it. The death rate is well beyond the birth rate. I think they're losing on average three rhinos a day. There's only 18,000 left. It's, it's not going to take long for them to be extinct. So our thought process is we want to create a safety deposit box of genetics that the world can draw from in times of need. So we want to protect the cradle of genetics while creating a new one. Okay. So let's, let's look back at a, a little bit in, in history about why is the white rhino in the position it's in now? How yeah. Did it, and did it get there? it's, it's done it twice now, Okay, actually. And uh, the first time, I'm trying to remember what the first time was, but the first time had had a lot to do with the fact that the, that, that the rhino was not privately owned. Uh, the only place that it existed was in parks and game reserves and national parks. And it almost went extinct in the 1950s, I believe. And the South African government decided to privatize them and their numbers skyrocketed. The problem that we're facing now is that the far Eastern um, cultural belief system has valued the rhino horn and what it what it is made out of unscientifically i might add <laughs> that uh that the price right. of the rhino horn is now above above the uh the most expensive drug it's it's more expensive than any precious diamond and it's a big problem because of the economic um level that south africa exists in that the the average you know person what they make annually and what they could sell a three kilogram rhino horn for is you know three four times their yearly salary so right it's a real bad problem but it's it's really stemming from far eastern medical beliefs and and poaching i mean they're going in and and even if a rhino has been dehorned you know properly ethically by the landowner and there's just a small bit of horn or let's say that it's a, a 14 month old i spoke with a lady that uh, runs a rehab center they had uh, poachers come in and shoot and poach a, uh, a rhino that had uh, that was 14 months old. I mean, it, it barely had any horn on its head, but they're still, I mean, even for the smallest amounts, they're going in there and poaching them. So <laughs> it's wild to me that you, it is. that you would 
based off of an economic belief or a, there's an, a belief in the, the medical system that's right. not here that this stuff cures everything. And, right. And driving that force is an economic stimulus. Um, that's all the money's flowing to these probably underground type groups, right? Right. Yes. And they're, it's, they're taking them illegally in order to gain them the monetary reward. Right. And that's just ridiculous to me. But I, I did, I did talk to a few people over there that had a very interesting set of people that we talked to over there. And we, they, we will have at some point, uh, I'm sure some sort of a, you know, documentary or synopsis of, of what we saw over there on our website, which people will be able to go and look at. But, um, their private private rhino owners have been, you know, ethically, legally, humanely removing the horns from their rhinos. You dart them, you put them to sleep and you cut it. The horn is made out of the exact same thing that our fingernails and our hair is made out of. So it's just like clipping a nail. If you go too deep, you'll hit that thing that's called the quick and you'll bleed a little bit. But even in, you know, that rarely happens. And even then you can seal it up, but they just cut off the top part of the horn it continuously regrows. So, you know, it's, it's not affecting the rhino at all, but they've been stockpiling that horn. Okay. Uh, the private rhino, the private rhino owners have been stockpiling that horn. So there's this one guy that I talked to and he goes, he said, the demand that's coming out of the East. Now, if you legalize the rhino horn trade, yep. the stockpiles that we have, plus the increase in population by people now having the incentive to breed rhinos and to have more rhinos, because now they can actually sell a product and make money back. Right. So the population of rhinos will grow right now. If you took all the rhinos that we had today, we cannot supply the far East, right. but we can supply the far East for long enough with the stockpiles that we already have to allow the population to get high enough to where we can supply the far East. Gotcha. And I thought that was very interesting. I still think it's, I still have a problem with it because it's, it's, it's not real. Right. They're, they're, it doesn't cure everything. And, but but the way that these South Africans talk about it is you got to get over that. It doesn't matter. They're not going to stop. So we either find the rhinos going extinct or we find a way to supply them with what they want. Because otherwise, uh, those are the only two options that we've got. Right. Basically. Because you're so, not going to convince them otherwise that this, this right. is not this isn't what you think it is. Yeah, I mean, you got to understand uh, us in America. We're we're one of the younger countries. <laughs> you know, right. this is a thousands of year old medical belief that you're just not going to switch over. Right. So that's really unfortunate. That, it is. That, that those are your only two solutions because you're not going <laughs> to change, not going to change the culture. Right. Right. So right. let's look at the other alternatives. So yes. you're, these things kind of, I mean, they don't carry over to like deer antlers, but in a sense they do. No. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, not, yeah. not, not nearly as bad as this, but I've, I've right. seen situations where thankfully the, the antlers fall off every year. Right. Right. So that right. that kind of solves your problem. You don't have to kill the animal to get the antlers. You can still get right. the antlers or kill them. Yeah. Or 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 devastating the population because you're seeking these. It would be one awful situation if they were seeking antlers from from deer and the, they never shed. That would be a right. bad situation. So that's kind of right. what, that's what you're up against here. Uh, but, right. But there is some medicinal stuff I think with with oh antler antlers in general, right, that are in the same culture. Yes. What is? What are your goals at this point? It sounds like you're trying to get a pretty good herd of rhinos going in Texas. Yeah, and we've gotten the 
we've got the support. We've got the support from both ends of the pond. Uh, we've got just about a hundred rhinos donated already. And these are, these are donations. These are people saying, you know, we'll even help you with the traveling costs. I mean, you guys need to pick up something. You guys need to pay something, but the rhinos themselves, we're donating them. You guys just take them. If you guys can get them over there, then just take it. And then we've got partnerships with them to where when they start breeding over here in the United States, you know, we, we, we've got a, a partnership that will go into the, the offspring um, so that, you know, we could sell the offspring ourselves to another uh, approved facility here in the United States to where we could make some of our money back from the transport costs. So there is a revenue stream there, but, um, and we've got about 30 uh, private property uh, people here in Texas and in Florida that have already raised their hands and said, Hey, we're willing to take them. One big thing about this project in the United States of America, every single Southern white rhino in the United States of America, there is absolutely zero intentions at all on the table for any time in the future to hunt these Southern white rhinos. That is not the purpose of this venture. Right. We're going to breed them. We're going to increase the population and we're going to ship them back to their country so that we can make sure that the animal doesn't go extinct. If the South Africans feel that they've got a population that's worth hunting and they've got it approved by their governments, they can do that. Our project with the rhinos has zero hunting involved. So that's another important thing right. to put out there. Is I mean, it sounds like they're under extreme pressure already to to survive uh, species-wise. Oh, yes, so for sure. Hunting, obviously, the money that comes in would help that. However, yes. there's a line like where you can't like where you just you need to like take a lot of time off where you don't disrupt. There's no disruption in in yeah. re recycling and, and breeding and, and growing the herd. Because right. at some point, like for example, in New Hampshire where I'm at, you can't hunt bobcats. Huh? They're they're on the rise. I mean, they were they were severely declined. Right. But there was a time that we got to below a certain point. We're like, no hunting. Period. Done. They're on the rise. They released a few tags this year for some trappers, but that's it. I, right. I'm seeing more and more, and I think someday you'll be able to, to hunt them again. But there's always that line. Like there's a line where hunting isn't going to help. Uh, right. No matter how much money you can bring in from hunting, it's just going to hurt the population in a sense. Right. Uh, right. But usually that money can offset some of the, or, or at least try to defeat some of the poachers. Uh, right. If there's money sure. coming in, but at some point you're going to say, "Look, I don't have enough. I don't have enough rhinos. <laughs> I right. don't have enough to to even donate. We have to like completely shut it off, like they did the bobcat in New Hampshire." So at, right, and the, I don't know how you, you tally these up. What should the population be for yeah, a white uh, rhino in the in the world right now? The uh, the estimated population right now is eighteen thousand. Okay, ish, and I I I don't know what what they're trying to get to to be comfortable and uh you know what 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 they want it to be at at the end of you know everything. If we were able to solve everything and change the culture in the in the far east and and, and uh, stop the poaching 100% and get the numbers back to where they wanted to. I don't know what that number is. I don't know if it's 50,000 or 100,000, okay. but I do know that there were 31 countries, I believe that's the right number, that had rhinos in them. And I mean, that's dwindled down to like, you know, seven. So it's, it's not really just a number. I mean, it's numbers, it's their range. It's just, it's a lot of things. I mean, you know, in, in historic times, there were 
there were much more and they were spread all throughout Africa. It was not just this, you know, aggregation that was in Southern Africa. And I, I know they'd like to see that become a possibility. Um, hmm. But yeah, we definitely need more than more than 18,000. And the Southern white rhino is, is that's the other thing about that is they're the ones that are, are doing the best right now. Uh, the Northern right white rhino, uh, the Southern black rhino, the Northern black rhino, all the, there's all these different subspecies of rhinos, the, uh, greater one horned rhino, they're all doing worse, but the, why the focus is on the Southern white rhino so much is all those other ones have fallen fell so far. And, and yes, they need our support and our attention, but let's do something with these guys while we still have a chance right? so that, that we don't turn around one day and we see that there's 20 of them. And then we decide to put all our support in. Right. It's like, while there's 18,000 of them, let's do something now before it becomes 20. So that's right. why we've got a lot of focus on it. Right. And, and just to, to look at some of the conservation success stories in the United States, let's take uh, the, the wild turkey, for example. Yeah. Or, yep. or look at where deer numbers were back in the 30s yeah. versus where they are yeah. today. At least you reckon, yeah. you know, there was some recognition that they, we're in trouble. And yes. let's not get it down to the point where, A, there won't even be enough because nobody's going nobody's gonna to hunt them because there won't be enough to hunt. Right. You know, you can go out and you might be, you'd be out for days before you would see a deer. Yeah. Well, and it's like the, that it's the exact, what we did with the scimitar horned oryx. I I don't know if you know, or your viewers know, but there was a really big project uh, with the Abu Dhabi. I think it was a UAE and, but private Texas ranchers were involved with it. We just took about a hundred scimitar horned oryx back and reintroduced them to the wild in their native range in Chad, hmm. where they had been classified by the IUCN as extinct in the wild. Right. So they were effectively extinct. The only place that they existed was captive breeding outside of their native range. We just reintroduced a hundred of them. We're going to try to spark that population back up in Chad. And it's a very long-term project. You got to have community outreach. You got to do all this stuff because obviously there was a reason why they went extinct the first time. You got to prevent that from happening again. It's a really big project, something that we Texans are very proud of, but that's all we're doing with this rhino project. The the reason that scimitar horned oryx were in the state of Texas was because back in the twenties, there was a couple of ranchers that wanted to see something on their ranch other than a whitetail, you know, so they bring in some scimitar horned oryx. Well, little did we know that we're just taking care of them. We're doing our thing. We hunt the old males, we breed, we trade, we sell. Before we know it, Texas has over 15,000 scimitar horned orcs. Well, they go extinct in the wild, but we've got the ability to take them back there and to try to bring them out of extinction. The captive breeding reversed right. the extinction. And so that's all we're doing on this rhino project. It's that same thing. We've got the time right now. We can see what's coming in the future. We got lucky with the scimitar. Let's take what we learned from the scimitar and apply it to the rhino and be prepared beforehand. So now if the rhino does go extinct, you look over to the United States, we've got 2,500 individuals, 3,000 individuals. We've got evolutionary potential that we can introduce back into their native lands. Right. And at some point you'd hope that the population got high enough where you could open up hunting um, effectively. Bring in dollars. Not not here for us. That's, no, not 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 here. Anymore. Yeah, it's not even on the radar. But over there, right. certainly. That's, yes. that's your starter culture. I mean, that's the yes. one that you gotta you gotta kind of keep open in case things don't go so good elsewhere where you don't have as much control. Yes. Right? Yes. And you can look back in history. This isn't just animal based. If you look back in history, you go to the the, the great plant, for example. 
in France, you think you know, when we think wine, we think French wine, right? Right. Well, there was a there was a, a virus that killed off a ton of the grape plants in the the wineries, basically wiped out all the French plants completely. Wow. And if it weren't for the United States growing grapes in, grapes. <laughs> in, in grapes in in New York state, wow. There would be no wine coming out of France. <laughs> that's crazy. I didn't right. know that. But that's that's the same concept, right? Yes. It's not yes. just animal based. It's I mean, you can look at plants. It's it's just that you have to have have a starter culture growing somewhere. Right. Yes. So that you can then take I mean, and the classic example is with with the grapes. They moved several grape plants back to France and they regrew French grapes. Now we have French wine again. But it had that, that is, I I did not know that. That is that's pretty fascinating. But yes, it's right. the exact same concept. Same yeah. concept, right? Yeah. So that you can always reintroduce the gen, the genetics of that animal back into the wild, and, yes. and repopulate it if things don't go well based off of the other conservation efforts. And and that's the other the flip side of the coin. I actually got into the only argument, the only person, the only non-supporter that I've met on this project uh, was a South African. And, and he was, he was just proud and which I, I don't blame him at all, uh, for being that way. But he said South Africa, these rhinos are South African rhinos. I mean, it's, it's a South African symbol. It's an African symbol. They don't belong in America. Right. And, and he, the, the flip side of the coin was if something happens over there, they go extinct. We can bring them back and, and reintroduce them and save the species. If they figure out the poaching and they figure out how to stop everything, we're still going to bring them back. (laughs) The goal is not to have an American herd. It would be really cool to see the first Texas born rhino be relocated back to South Africa. Mm -hmm. But, but the goal is not to Americanize the rhino. It's to keep it in its native lands. But I'm trying to explain to this guy, you can see him being bred in the United States for a period of time, or the next time you're seeing them, it's behind a glass wall at a museum. That's so right. which, which one would you prefer? It's like, I'm not trying, we're not trying to take your rhinos. We're really not. We don't want to Americanize them. We don't want to have them here. I mean, the zoos have some herds and there's private rancher, private facilities that have herds and, and, and it's good to have them. They're, they're good educational tools and stuff, but we don't want to take the Southern white rhino and make it the American white rhino. That is not our goal at all. Right. Right. And then, but but you're you're just giving the white rhino a safety net, yes. Just in case. That's right. That's exactly right. right. Yes. And I think I think I think as a society, the Americans are good at that. We're good yeah. at preserving certain aspects of culture because we recognize that it can disappear pretty quick if you let it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. Because we literally are a melting pot. <laughs> we, exactly. Yeah. The United States is a melting pot. We, yes. we are a collective yes. of many different cultures. Yeah. And if, if we let, and can you imagine if we just let, you know, the dictators destroy cultures across the, the world, there would be no individualized cultures. And likewise with a, with a rhino, there would be no rhinos. Right. Yep. Are there any other animal species that there is something like this going on as well? Uh, on this scale, uh, not that I know of, uh, where, where the importations, you know, the, the problem with the United States is, well, I don't know if it's a problem or not, but uh, we cannot or have not imported any hoof stock into the United States for a very long time. Okay. And the reason for that is hoof and mouth. And right. I, I want to say it's either the, the largest or second largest lobby lobbying group in United States is the cattle industry. Hmm. 
And so you're going to have a hard time importing hoof stock just because of the hoof and mouth disease. And if, if one passed through customs and it got infected and it started running rampant, it could just destroy the, the cattle industry, which is, which is huge, which gotcha. is a, okay. a, a major thing for us. So, um, so one of the reasons that we're able to do this is obviously that the, the rhino is not hoof stock. Um, but I can't think of any an, other animals that are on this scale where their their numbers are so bad in their native lands, they're decreasing dramatically, exponentially even. And and there's a big export export from their native lands, import to, to foreign lands project. But I do know that there's other countries that are importing the southern white rhino. I think Australia's got a big import, and I think even Vietnam has a big import of the live southern white rhinos from South Africa. So Gotcha. Okay. What in your view from it sounds like you're deep into conservation and uh, the understanding of conservation where is the, where is the deer herd in the United States at as far as uh, whitetails muleys uh, any of the huntable uh, deer species yeah i don't know much about the other native deer species and and it, you know it's funny because we actually consider our texas deer a completely different species <laughs> than some of those whitetail that you guys are grow or that they're being grown out in yeah. the midwest i mean yeah. it's like they should be classified differently but no uh i mean in texas it's absolutely i mean it's it's got to be a nine or a ten for the white-tailed deer right. i mean our our industry is it's a multi-billion dollar industry uh every year uh we are kind of coming under a bit of heat right now from the the state government about the chronic wasting disease mm-hmm. um and I just got a really interesting email from uh, one of the organizations that I belong to, which is called the Exotic Wildlife Association. Okay. Um, sent out an email that basically had some facts on what they're finding out about CWD, and it was it's kind of shocking because it's it's they're not finding a whole lot, but yet what they're the regulations that they're placing on us and the amount of deer that they're killing is catastrophic, in my opinion. Okay. So they've had, um, in 2000 and in, in 2015, they had 18 positives out of 32 points, uh, 32,737 samples, which is 0.055%. Okay. But yet they killed, you know, thousands of deer, right. uh, okay. checking, checking for the CWD. Wow. And that, that's just, it's just not good. And so now it's kind of overextended the deer. See the, the exotics in the state of Texas, we are extremely low regulation on exotic. Okay. If I'm driving in my trailer and I got my TX number on game warden pulls me over. And if I'm transporting deer, he can look at them, look at tags, look at this, look at that. If I'm transporting exotics, I mean, he can look at them, but there's not much he can do about it. There's no permit that I need. There's no paperwork that I need to have with me. So really, okay. Because of the CWD, they're starting to reach their hands into elk, psyca and red deer. Right. So now we're starting to get some regulations on the exotic industry that are within the state lines. There's always been regulations when, whenever you go outside of the state of Texas or bring something in from outside of the t- state of Texas. But yep. now we're getting some regulations on exotics inside of the state of Texas. So it's it's kind of a this CWD thing for us down here is going to continue to be a big deal. And I know there's a lot of lawsuits and a lot of people that are angry. But regardless of that, I would say that the deer industry – uh, here in the state of Texas, for sure, is is uh, is steady. <laughs> okay. Right, I agree. I agree. Yeah. It's steady yeah. and 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 strong and growing. Yes. Is, yes. Is there a connection between exotics and CWD? 
Yeah, it's just on the cervids. So technically in the state of Texas, uh, elk is an exotic, red stag is an ex- exotic, and uh, psycho deer okay. are exotics. Okay. Uh, you know, like they haven't extended it to fallow or axis or anything like that yet. It's, it's really just those three that are c- considered CWD susceptible species, but elk are not considered native game in, in Texas. They're still considered exotics. So. Gotcha. Interesting. Very, you yeah. have some very interesting work going on. Is there anything else that, that you've got that you're involved with that is on the cusp of something relative to the, the, the rhino as far as intricacies or, or things that, I mean, we, we're way beyond our boundaries on this show right now. I know that because we never talk about the white rhino, but it's very interesting <laughs> and it's a good lesson in, in conservation no matter what, you're right. talking, no, what, no matter what the species is. Well, I mean, you know, it's just for us, what's important to us is the fact that uh, there's a lot of really good organizations out there doing a lot of really good work trying to conserve wildlife species and always be careful. Always do your research, uh, find a website, uh, find a, uh, a negative website about it, you know, just kind of kind of do your learning before you go out and start supporting people. But there's there's a lot of really good organizations that are doing a lot of good things for us. You know, we understand that the the Bengal tiger has a really hard is having a really hard time right now. It's not a whole lot that we can do with the Bengal tiger except for send money to a foreign government and hope it gets spent the right way. Right. What we can do and what we what what's important to us is physically interacting with the species that we're trying to save. So that our money isn't going somewhere where we don't it's not tangible. We need it to be something tangible. So what we focus on is the things that we can directly be involved with. So uh, the reticulated giraffe, which just recently got classified as endangered, um, the grebe zebra, which is a uh, highly endangered species, all of our lemurs, the ring-tailed lemur, red rough lemur, black and white rough lemurs, they're all critically endangered. Um, so we've got breeding herds and breeding programs of all of those species and more. We house over... 80 different species of exotics okay. on the property. Gotcha. So from every continent except Antarctica. Do you ever skeptically look at the numbers when it comes to when they're deeming something endangered or threatened? Do you ever wonder whether or not those are accurate? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the wild, a lot of times uh, the, the, the information that I've heard on the attics, there's a, an antelope from Northern Africa called the attics, and it's critically endangered right now. But I, I want to say somebody was telling me at some point, the reason it's critically endangered instead of extinct in the wild was because there were three of them that were seen like 10 years ago or something like that. You right. know, it's like, okay. well, we know those three were out there, so they may still be alive. So they're still critically endangered. They're not extinct, you know. So, yeah, I mean, there there's definitely some of that going on but i would say for the most part there's some pretty good uh scientific minds and, and people on the ground at iucn and they've got yeah. a big convention where they come together every year and they're they're probably about as accurate as, as you can get okay but but yeah there's probably some some divergence there like i always feel like unfortunately that it's sometimes it's not always science-based sometimes it's politically based Oh yeah, and that it, is true. You know what I mean? Like, look at the, the wolf might be an example of that, where I feel like some of the rules and regulations that were placed on on what you know, if you can just just get into the into the category of threatened or endangered, then then we can 
put a halt to the hunting aspects of a certain species. Right. Yes. But it was but the drive was was dictated from a, a side of politics that wasn't any more interested in they were they were more interested in just keeping the hunters at bay because that's the yes. that's the opposition. They're on the team, they're on the other team. Therefore, yes. we're going to do whatever we can to do to to stop them from progressing with a hunt because we don't want them doing what we don't want them to do. Yeah, want it, and and there's I think there's other rules, other laws that really focus in on that. Like, for example, the polar bear when it went, I think it was back in the Bush administration where they made it to where it was illegal to import any product of polar bear into the United States. So it was still legal to go up and hunt them. It was still legal to import everything that you wanted to to China or to Mexico mm-hmm. or to South America. Uh, you know, home and home, home and uh, Canada or whatever up in the Arctic Circle uh, was a local community. I know that they still had a quota that they had to they had to harvest a certain amount because they were still coming into their town and and getting in their trash cans. Plus, there is a huge factor about polar bears that a lot of people don't know that uh, the big males practice infanticide, which means that when they come out of hibernation or when they're extra hungry, they will go and kill the young. But it's only really the old males that will do that. So by harvesting an old male, you could potentially save a couple babies. So there's a lot of stuff there. But anyway, you couldn't import their products back to the United States. So that that was something that was completely politically motivated, in my opinion, because there, the United States was saying, you can still go kill them. You just can't bring your mountain back with you. <laughs> and, and and scientifically, we still needed to go and hunt them. Right. But but we couldn't bring the products back, but, but China could, Mexico could. So that, that didn't have to do with numbers. It didn't have to do with science. In my opinion, that had to do with trying to prevent people from hunting them by not allowing them to keep their trophy. Exactly. And and so that's where politics blends with science and it shouldn't. And yes, it really angers me when it does. It does. I know. (laughs) It really burns me deep. Yes, I agree. Well, it sounds like you got a lot going on, and I think your efforts are very notable. And it's it's fascinating that that uh, you know you you kind of came from a hunting aspect, but ended up getting into a, a deeper rooted conservation effort than, yeah. than maybe even dreamed of. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's very cool stuff. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about deer hunting. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> let's get back to the focus of the show. Get, let's get back to the fo- Well, yes, it is, it is a deer hunting podcast. That's and, right. <laughs> but, the, I mean, it's, the conservation stuff comes up now and then, and I mean, it's, yeah. it's fun to go deep on that stuff because the, I, mean, I, I think conservation is global, and it should be. And I don't ever want to lose sight of that, that, right. you know, how important it is for conservation to be involved in hunting and for hunting to be involved in conservation. Right. They go hand in hand. They are married and they always should be. Now you're a hunter. uh, And when I asked you to think about a memorable deer story, you said, (laughs) there's been too many of them. It's hard to remember them all. Well, see, you grow up and you grow up in, in Texas. I mean, that's just what you do is you deer hunt, right? You know, and, and, uh, I've killed a lot of management deer. I've killed a lot of cold deer. You know, I'm talking about a, uh, uh, eight point deer, what we call an eight point deer, four on each side, yeah. uh, you know, that's, you know, seven, eight years old, you know, so I, I, I grew up doing that and it, it's a great way to, you know, learn as a, as a youth, uh, how to hunt, how to stalk and track and, um, how to shoot properly and, and, 
and all all of the stuff that goes into being a good ethical hunter can be done whitetail hunting here in texas so right that's really what i grew up doing you brought up an interesting point where is that line where we go like i say 10 pointer right you sounds like you say 10 pointer in texas well and 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 oh yeah yeah so colorado it's it's the mule deer guys i think is what it is is. that where the line guys come out and they say that's a i I saw a four pointer come in i said you mean a, a little forky and they go, no, 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 four on one, four on the other. I'm like, that's an eight point. <laughs> that's an eight point. <laughs> yeah, not a four point. I think the line I think is something. Yeah, deer guys. I think you're right. I think about the line where mule deer start to become a natural abundance. That's, yes, that's where the hunters come in. I think they kind of carried that that ten pointer into the five by five category, and it yeah. carried over into the all. Hunting. And we we call them we call them uh, brow tines, and they call them eye guards. I think. <laughs> No. Exactly, and I, <laughs> so I'm, it, it's kind of like it, it, there's a line. There's definitely a yeah. line where things yeah. change when you're describing the deer that you're after. Yes, That's yes, funny. absolutely. All right, so I asked you about a memorable deer hunt to take us down. Can you did you did one pop into your head? Yeah, the, yeah, there actually is. So it's okay. It's actually the biggest deer that I ever killed, and I don't know how many people on your show have been through this, but I'm going to assume that it's more than one. <laughs> so we yeah. I was a young kid. Okay. I was on a management hunt. Uh, I'd actually stepped up from the, the coal hunt. And so I was, I was getting to shoot something that, you know, would have been mountable, something that I could have hung up in the house and everything. So I was real excited, but I was a youngster and I was, I was rifle hunting and we're in a blind and it's the wee hour. The sun's kind of past the horizon, but, but it's still light enough to see. And we see my management buck come in the one that we would, we'd been hunting. So comes in this field and he's grazing across and I'm waiting for a shot, waiting for a shot. Never really get one. He's with this other buck. They go behind a cedar tree and this buck pops out and I'm with a guide and the guide is filming everything, which may have been my saving grace. Okay. Deer pops out. And I said, is it that one? The guide goes, yes, it's that one. So I, I've got a clean shot. You want me to shoot that one that just popped out? Yes. Shoot it. Boom. Great shot. Animal runs 20 yards, falls over. We're celebrating all that other stuff. So we get out of the stand. And I mean, a management deer is, is a 130 inch deer is like the top, you know, 125 to 135. Really, you're looking in that range. So we walk up on this deer and it is a 173 inch 16 point deer. (laughs) And I'm just, my heart just dropped because it was, it's a very prestigious ranch. And I was, you know, in a, you know, in a, in a place where I didn't want to screw up and it was my first management hunt. And fortunately we got everything on video and the owner of the place was just such a good guy. And, and he had known us for, you know, several years. He's a good friend of ours. And he laughed it off and he said, he said that had nothing to do with you. And I, I don't want you to feel guilty. This is an amazing trophy. You should be happy. So everything ended up great, but that, that mount still hangs in my house. And every time I look at it, I remember that story. Gotcha. That's a good story. Yeah. Good. Right, did it's you like, spend whoops. most of your time hunting on ranches in, in that aspect? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, we, I grew, I grew up hunting just, you know, New, Texas is 99% privately owned. Okay. I think New Mexico is probably like 20% privately owned, you know, New right. Mexico yeah. has a lot of public land. So I've always said that I actually Texas grew up could be its own country if it had to. That's, that's exactly right. right. But I grew up hunting a lot in the mountains, the Gila and the Pecos and, uh, you know, up nor- Northern New Mexico. And I, I grew up hunting the mountains a lot. And then when we came to Texas, yeah, we would, we typically be on, on private hunting ranches, but that's, you know, that's what you've got in, in Texas. <laughs> right. We don't have much of the other stuff. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. So I'm, I was just reading on your website. I got to ask you this question. We, yep. The SWC, uh, which is, stands for Stewards of Wildlife Conservation. Yes. And that you have a permit, a breeder permit for all kinds of species, which would explain the, the ability to breed the wild rhino or the, the white rhino, I should say. You also have a scientific white-tailed deer breeder permit. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. That's just the, it's just the state Texas parks and wildlife department, the state regulatory agency that, that looks over. So, uh, all of the deer in the state of Texas are owned by the state of Texas. So I've got deer in a whitetail pen system, a scientific deer breeder system, okay. which is where we can, uh, you know, we can make sure that the deer get bred a certain way. You know, we can, we can, we can determine which bucks go in with which does. So it, 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 it increases the productivity of the breeding. Uh, and even though those deer are in a pen, we're feeding them, we're caring for them. We can trade them back and forth to other ranches freely and make money off of them and everything. We don't own them. They're owned by the state of Texas. So gotcha. Texas parks and wildlife has a scientific deer breeder permit that you have to obtain to be able to have that breeder system. Okay. When they're, loose on your property, you don't have to have that permit. But if you're going to have a scientific deer breeder system, you have to have that permit. Gotcha. And do you do any of that on your ranches that you have? Yeah, yeah, we do. We've got, uh, we do some, some, uh, intensive breeding programs with the white-tailed deer. Gotcha. What is the purpose of the program? The purpose of the program really is to increase the value of the deer. Okay. So, I mean, that's, uh, like I said, the, the deer industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that pays for a lot of different things, right. uh, pay people's jobs, you know, uh, increase in land value. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into the deer industry itself. Uh, you know, even just, you know, there's people that'll improve habitats just to have white-tailed deer. So, sure, of course. uh, and, and, and that, that value behind them is what keeps people coming back to Texas for the hunting of the white-tailed deer, okay. but it also keeps us in the business of making sure that we have white-tailed deer. Gotcha. So, so when you say you're increasing the value, what does that mean? Are you, are you trying well, with to... a, with, with a whitetail, it's with a whitetail, it's mostly antler. antler I mean, you're looking okay. for bigger antlers, uh, you know, and there's, there's some people, the the way that we do it, I mean, there's, and there's bad eggs in every group and I'm not necessarily saying they're bad eggs, but there's some people that are growing these 600 inch whitetail deer and it's just got kickers and stickers going everywhere. Yeah. This is, uh, these are the folks that, you know, where you, we have a, a fairly blue collar hunting public on our Facebook page. And if right. you know, we throw up a, any kind of a, um, fenced kill, right. they go crazy. I mean, it's, it's just, yes. it's, it's, they just attack. Yes. So, so yes. this is, that's the side that, that, uh, is in, in huge controversial. Yes. Uh, well, and, and, and yeah, and, and, and there's, there's positives and negatives. And I've been to, I've been to ranches here in Texas that, that didn't really, I wasn't too happy to look at and, and realize that it was a hunting ranch, not saying that I've hunted at the, those places, but I've, I've been to them before, but, um, the, there's a really good definition that the exotic wildlife association has for fair chase hunting. And I, I, I can't say it verbatim off the top of my head, but I could try to get it to you. So you could post it on your Facebook, but yep. it's basically that that animal has the ability to realize your presence as a human and to evade you effectively. Right. Um, right. 
you know, so if you're in a 200 acre pasture, that's just grass with no trees, that's, that's not a fair situation. That's not fair chase. So as far as the high fence hunting and, and I mean, this is one of the things that I just beat my head against the wall. And I am one of those guys that does draw lines. Don't get me wrong, but we have got to stop fighting ourselves. Yes. If, if you're a high fence guy versus a free range guy, if you're a crossbow hunter versus a bow hunter or a compound versus a recurve or scope rifles or whatever, we got to stop fighting ourselves. Yep. We have got to learn how to portray the message to the general public of what we do and why we do it and why it's good for the species survival. Right. And we need to stop infighting and we need to educate the general public. That's my opinion. Cause they've already got their arguments They we don't, we don't need to help them out by doing the high fence debate. In my opinion, as long as it is fair chase, ethical hunting on a high fence, there, there should be no argument behind that. Right. And, and that's kind of the conclusion I came to and people may disagree, but th- we don't need another line in the sand. That's right. There's already one big one. We, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly we right. Don't need a bunch of little yeah. ones. Let's all <laughs> just forget true. about that. If you want to hunt a high fence, then go do it. If that's yeah. your style of hunting that you like to do, if you want to yes. hunt over bait, go hunt over bait. If you, if, if you want to raise deer and, and kill yes. them and it's, and all this is legal, then do it. Yes. But yes, at least be on, be on the same team, be supportive. And if that's not your preference, then then don't be barking out at the people that that's right. that are doing it because that, you don't have to do it. It's your preference. That's this is right. America. We can do whatever yeah, we right. want as long <laughs> as it's legal, and we don't have to tell the other person how to do it. Or even you can you can express like, well, hey, it's not really my thing. No big deal. Yeah, you want to do it, yeah. you go do it. I'm, yeah, that's right. Personally, that's exactly right. I'm not really a high fence hunter kind of guy, but I'll be the last guy to tell you not to do it. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and I'm not a big high fence hunter guy myself, but high fence hunting is what took the scimitar horned oryx from extinction to existing naturally in their native habitat. Right. So that's something to stick in the, in the pot. Exactly. There, so. I would never say don't, <laughs> don't do this because it's, it's harming our culture as hunters. It's not right. It's not, it's really not. It's actually helping it quite a bit. <laughs> exactly. We might someday we might need those genetics. We don't know. That's right. That's so, right. So yep. it sounds like you're you're involved in some some uh, breeding and not 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 genetically altering that would be the wrong word but you're you're using genetics to help the the deer herd and keep it a uh, a thriving situation right. yes economically and physically correct yes and absolutely your and I gotta ask you what and when we always hear is it is it genetics or is it environment. Or is it nutrition? On antler growth? Yeah. Oh, I believe it's both, 100%. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a, yeah, and and, and, and nutrition, I think, has a lot to do with it as well. I agree. Um, I think it's You know, you could have certain years where I've had, I've had a year, you know, because we, because they're in, in a pin system, in a scientific deer breeding pin system, a lot of times you have a lot of bucks together. So you have to cut their antlers off because if you leave them on when they get to, in the middle of the rut, when they start fighting each other, they can't get away from each other. There's nowhere to run to the other end of the pasture. So they can end up hurting each other. And, and I've seen years where you can have a 200 inch deer and you cut his, his antler. And I mean, you turn it upside down and the inside of the antler looks like just like honeycomb. Like it's, it's real yep. porous yes. inside of the core of the antler. Right. And then that same deer, you know, next year that wasn't a drought year and we, we, you know, uh, they got a different type of protein or we, we switched something up on them and, uh, you cut that same guy off and now he's two fifteen, 
and you look inside of that antler and it's, you know, it's solid core mm-hmm. all the way through. So I, I think it's environmental nutrition and genetics for sure. Yeah. We've had similar conversations with Jason Obermiller from Rackology. Yeah. Who has been yeah. on our show before and he's a taxidermist on the side, but he's also developed a formula for some mineral, mineral supplements that. Right. He, and he can tell when the deer are coming to a shop that they might have big racks, but he knows darn well that there, there's something missing from that deer's nutritional pattern because right. the, the, they're light antlers and not dense. So yes, there's, yes. There's, there was something here that wasn't quite right, and maybe that's yes. the genetics playing a part without the nutrition. Yeah, well, and another thing about the genetics that a lot of people, I don't say a lot, but people sometimes uh, uh, fail to realize is that the female has a whole lot to do with it. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, when you're when you're breeding something where the the males have an a hood ornament and the females don't, right? Uh, you know, you you tend to look. That's a big male. I'm going to breed him to this female. Well, that female that you decide to breed him to is just as important as as him himself. Absolutely. So, All right. Yeah. Yeah. Then when you know you get down to your X and Y chromosomes, that that's right. <laughs> there are patterns passed on from through that the female from yep. from the male that were her father you know and her yes exactly so yes there are pieces of that puzzle that you can't necessarily see in the in the the dough but it's certainly yes. very important about the genetics just like in humans you know our grand oh, yeah. our grandfathers or you know i, I got yep. white, i have white hair almost now now that i'm <laughs> yeah. past 40 and my grandfather and my uncle both had white hair you know yeah but my mom doesn't yeah <laughs> you wouldn't know that yeah it's right? and it, it is something when you get into that that deer breeding I was for a couple of years. I'm not, not anymore, but it, it, it can, it can almost drive you insane. Cause, cause you, you know, how much, how complex it can become. Right. And then you've got to wait, uh, you know, typically a year or two to see, uh, you know, what you did, how well you did, uh, right. Right. Yeah, with this. your breeding. So it, it, it's something you can beat your head against right. the wall quite a bit. Hence the, the science, the, of it. the scientific aspect of the, yeah. Comment. Got it. All right, yeah. let's uh, let's get into ten rapid fire questions. So I, I, ten uh, rapid fire. Ten rapid. I don't Come know on. if you're you're ready for. That. Everybody says, "Come let's on, let's do when it." I say that. That's pretty good. <laughs> All right, so I haven't prepped you for these, and they're just better that way. So yeah, let's let's, let's uh, start with number one. Okay. All right. Of all, I mean, you've killed a bunch of deer in your lifetime, yes. as you you mentioned. What yes. What's your number one hunting tip of all time? Oh, number one hunting tip: learn to be a good stalker. It's not necessarily about how far you can shoot out or how good you can shoot. It's about getting close enough to that animal to where you've got that little bit of room for error so that you make a good shot and you put that animal down ethically. Very cool. All right. I like that. I like getting close. That's my thing. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a bow hunter, so yeah. I rarely hunt with a rifle. Typically only hunts where they, they don't allow bows. So. Gotcha. I don't, yeah. and, and I don't mind bow or gun. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with. No, I don't either. With either. But yeah. e- either way, I like my shots to be close. Yes, <laughs> I, I do too. Love, I agree with you. I love the aspects of it. <laughs> it's better for us. It's better for the animal. It's yeah. better all around. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, I, coming from New Hampshire where it's 85% timber, I don't know what a 600-yard shot feels like. Yeah. I don't have true. one. I couldn't that's tell true. you. I mean, I got to go. F- I have true. to, like, seek out special property to go figure out what this is going to be like. You need to come down into Mexico and do some pronghorn hunting. Right. See, I, I, a long shot would be foreign to me so if i can get it at 30 yards or less i'm a happy yeah. camper and I'm i don't care if it's a, a 30 yard six or uh in my matthews bow i'm just happy yeah, that's right. when it's closer all right i agree 
Okay, number two, what's the one thing that you can't hunt without? We all have these things we leave in the truck or leave at home, and it drives us a little crazy for like, oh, man, I wish I had that blank. What's, my, what's that thing for you? My release. Your release. <laughs> yeah. For sure. I am so conscious of that dang thing. Every time I go on a hunt, I and I've got, I have two backups that are always in my bow case there and my go. backpack. There you go. I've got, I've got one on the bow, one in the bow case, one in the backpack, just in case. <laughs> good, good plan. All right. Yeah. What's your biggest pet peeve in life? Oh my goodness. I don't know if it's necessarily a pet peeve, but, um, passive aggressiveness. Yeah. I tell people all the time. I say, I, I prefer the company of animals to people 10 to one. Yep. And it's, it's because they don't talk behind your back. They don't play games. They're, they're straightforward. They're, they are who they are. And that that's exactly how they're going to be. And I don't, I don't like fakeness. I don't like it when somebody smiles and looks you in the face and then tells you one thing goes behind your back and, and, and does something else it drives me crazy. Gotcha. You said you're in your thirties. Is that right, Cole? I'm just now I'm going to be 30 next year. You're going to be 30 <laughs> next year. I see. Yeah. I haven't quite got there yet. I'm almost 30. Yeah. Okay. Being almost 30, what would you tell the 15-year-old Cole Reed knowing what you know today? That's a good one. Uh, it's, that's a really difficult one because I am in such a uh, an amazing place in my life right now. I'm married to a wonderful, beautiful woman. I live out on the middle of a 3,000-acre property with 8,000 animals. I'm uh, 8,000, 80 different species. Sorry. I'm, I'm doing what I love. I'm working with animals. I get to travel. I I'm not sure I'd tell him to do anything because the choices that he's made to get me to this point, if I'm, if I'm, if I changed any of those, I, I, I don't know if my life would be as good as it is right now. Right, not, man. not to be all arrogant or no, I don't cocky about how good my life is, but I, I'm really in a good spot right now. Good, man. I'm glad, yeah. I'm, I'm glad somebody is finally there because that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's excellent. All right. So you meet a, a stranger in a hotel lobby at a hunting convention somewhere in the world and they ask you what you do for a living. What do you tell them? Um, I tell them I'm, I'm a wildlife conservationist. Very cool. All right. Yeah. Straightforward. Yes. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I don't eat breakfast. You don't eat breakfast. No, I'm not a breakfast guy. I had a cup of coffee, a couple cups of coffee. And then I had, uh, for lunch, I had a sandwich and I had some, uh, some, uh, Eld's deer beef sticks. (laughs) Eld's deer beef sticks. All right. Yeah. Jalapeno cheese beef sticks. Okay. They're All really right. good. Right. It sounds similar to my, my, my dinner that I had. It, it, yeah, there I, you go. I, I, I found some bacon that I chopped into little bits. I, I put it in the pan, found some cod, oh. put that over the bacon, and then I, I uh, had a couple of uh, fried eggs on top of it. So oh, that sounds so good. Oh, my goodness, that sounds good. It was fantastic. Yeah. And the cod, you know, coming right out of the ocean from where I live. Oh. So it, it just doesn't get any better than that. No, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's um, making my mouth water. <laughs> good. Excellent. Cause you made my mouth water. So that's right. <laughs> All right. Very good. Um, and, uh, okay. You get your own billboard on the side of a highway anywhere in the country. It's a blank canvas. What would you put on it? I have the answer for this, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. Okay. If you come, if you circle back around to that question, then I'll give it to you here in just a second. Okay. I'll move on to the next one. We'll get back to that after. Yeah, bring back to that one. All right. Uh, If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops into your head and why? Oh, I I would probably I'd probably say my father. Okay. uh, Under that that regard, Um, he is he is somebody who's not you know he's he taught me how to truly be successful and and he he taught me that uh, that it's not it's not a 
financial does not is not what makes you successful or not. Right. Uh, he he happens to be successful financially, but he is his 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 success is not measured in finances, and that's a lesson that he passed down to me. He's 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 where I describe my life. You know, wonderful wife and 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 uh, a great job and something that he loves to do, and he gets to travel and he's he's surrounded by friends and family who just adore him and love him. And, and, and I mean, he is, he is very successful, uh, in life through, through love and, and, and experiences. Very nice. All right. I got your billboard. Okay. The let's greatest, go back to the billboard the, question. What do you got? The, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. There you go. Yes. That sums There's up your, your life. I think right there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you, man. Yeah, my other favorite quote of all time is actually a David Attenborough quote, but it wouldn't necessarily be as good for a billboard, but uh, it's a belief of mine. I wish the world was twice as big and half of it was still unexplored. Oh, man. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like my that. goodness. Half the world unexplored. Oh, yeah. Love, and the it. world was twice as big. Wow. Basically, that none of nothing had been discovered yet, and you were here to do it all. Can uh, you imagine? Cool. Can you imagine yeah. what that day would be like? It would be cool. Oh, just, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, okay. Number nine. What's a day in your life look like? Oh, um. You know, nowadays, you know, I, I get up early. I try to get outside and, and check on animals and check on the, you know, hit the the reticulated giraffes, the zebras, the, you know, just going around property, making sure everybody's fed, watered. Uh, unfortunately, these days I'm doing a lot more um, media marketing. Um, we're working on our rhino importation. Obviously, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of paperwork outside the rhino importation that, 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 uh, that, is required for us to be legal and legally raise all these animals. So yep. I end up finding myself in the office quite a bit these days, <clears throat> but it's a, it's an ebb and flow thing. And I, and I understand that there's, there's certain times of the year that require you to be in the office. And there's certain times in the year where you're not going to get into the office for a week and people are going to be screaming at you. Uh, right now, the day in the life of Cole actually consists of quite a bit of office work so unfortunately but i do get out there every day make sure i i check on the animals check on the projects and, and all that good stuff so gotcha okay and number 10 what's a deer hunting day in your life look like Ooh, you know i'm 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 an evening hunting kind of guy okay so i do love morning hunts it depends on the hunt and how rowdy we are and how much fun we're having the night before but uh, i'm one of those guys that likes to I, I really enjoy, I, I'll never forget. I was, I was sitting in a tree stand in, where was that? Colorado, maybe, or maybe it was just Northern New Mexico, but I was sitting in a tree stand. The The snow was waist deep. I'm freezing my butt off. I'm shaking. I've got every jacket and undergarment that I could possibly have. And I'm just shivering and I'm sitting in the snow. I didn't even know if I was going to be able to pull the bowstring back because I was shaking so bad from being cold. I really do enjoy hunting in South Texas in a deer blind where you can relax and have a drink and enjoy the animals and watch the rut. And for me, a day in the life of hunting is the hunting is just the cap off. If I, if I don't, if I don't shoot a single deer, it's a, a night well spent. Very nice. That's a, that's the 10 rapid fires. I think you did. Ten rapid fire. All right. You're all done with that. All right. So where can we find, more about you, Cole, if we wanted to learn more about the stewards of wildlife or any of the efforts you have going on. Yeah. So, uh, 
the website is is www.stewardsofwildlife.org. It's a really great website. Uh, we've got a great marketing and media team that have put everything together. Uh, you can go through and learn more about us. You can see the the big projects that we have going on right now: the rhino, the zebras, the damas, the sable, giraffe, bongo, lemurs. Um, you can see some of our conservation partners. Um, and, and like I said, I mean, it, for us, what, we, what we're trying to do is garner support. I mean, the more people we can get supporting us, uh, the more money that we can gain from the general public, the more we can educate the general public, the better off everybody is. But, you know, don't take my word for it. Do your research. Learn as much as you can about us. Uh, I, think, I think my number's on the website. I think we've got an email address on there that's uh, info at Stewards of Wildlife. That actually comes physically to me. So, ask us questions, uh, talk to us. If there's anything you want to want to know, uh, let us know and we'll try to answer it. All right. Very good, man. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we were able to have this talk and you, your, your efforts kind of remind me of a Ted talk that I once saw about, oh. about the, the wild, uh, lion. And they were, it was a, a fellow that was given the talk and he was very, very at one time anti hunting because right. he felt that, the hunt was going to destroy his herd more than it actually was helping. Right. Because they were already having challenges with poachers. But as it turns out, as his research went in, he realized that hunting is a crucial aspect of conservation in that the the money that was raised by allowing the some lions to be hunted and killed far outweighed the poaching efforts because you were able to hire the, the police and, and watch the herd and, and protect the herd with the money that you raise from allowing some, some animals to be killed. They realized right. that that's the really the only way to make this happen successfully right. is to allow hunting to exist side by side through conservation because it, it actually drives the money and makes it a valuable aspect so that that herd can survive. Yes, absolutely. And he did a complete 180 on hunting and said hunting is crucial to the survival of, of lions. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's, a, there's something to be said for hunters about our ecological impact. Right. Uh, if you have a, a game park, a safari drive through game park in Africa, uh, and you have uh, somebody who is an anti-hunter, uh, wildlife welfare activist, I don't know what you want to call them, right. goes to that place as they're anti-hunting. A lot of the times, I'm not saying every one of them, but a lot of the times those people require running water, uh, you know, built facilities that have four right. walls, doors, closing doors. Uh, the Jeeps that they drive around have those, you know, six seat, six benches in the back of them for big parties. And that takes up gas. You have to build on paved roads. Whereas the hunter goes, and not all of them, but can stay in a tent. Uh, can sleep out on the ground. We'll right. go to the bathroom behind a tree. We'll go on a bumpy road. And m- the, all the hunts that I've ever been on in Africa have been on really rugged terrain. Right. You know, so there is less of an ecological impact, and there is more of a financial impact when a hunter goes than when a non-hunter goes. In right. general, right? Exactly. And that's the point that I think this was this whole show is about: is that hunting and conservation are dual equal efforts that need each other. Yes, absolutely. Right, very yes. Good. Well, thank you, Cole. This has been an absolute pleasure and an honor, and I had a really good time talking to you about 
all the aspects that you're into relative to conservation and the white rhino and the other things that you were able to bring to light for us relative to deer hunting uh, and relative to the global aspects of what you're dealing with. And uh, I I learned a lot talking to you. So thank you very much for coming on the show and, and opening up for us. Yeah, I really, really appreciate uh, you having me, and, and I really appreciate what you do because um, we've got a local guy here in Texas. Uh, his name is Alan Warren, and I did a radio show with him, and and he was uh, I was on as one of his conservation heroes, and he said, who's a conservation hero for you? And I said, you know, Alan, it's you, and, and I will say the same thing to you because you guys are a voice that is getting out there, and in my opinion, we need to educate the general public. We need to talk to them. We need to have the conversation, and you are – the the piece that gets that message out so thank you for what you do and 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 thanks for allowing me to be a part of it oh it's our pleasure and thank you so much cole for those kind of words and we'll have to have you back again someday if uh absolutely and maybe we can talk a little bit more deer hunting and give us an update on what you have going on with the, the white rhino that'd be good cole blew me away really when it comes down to it you wouldn't think that somebody could be such a deep thinker and apply such deep activism, in a sense, to get this this whole project underway. I mean, imagine yourself saying, I need a herd of 2,500 rhino just in case the population goes kaput in the other parts of the world. Yeah, it kind of makes sense, though, really. It, it makes a lot of sense. I, it, I loved his example of the onyx, how they inadvertently, because of high-fence hunting, when that species basically became extinct, they were able to take from their population that they already had in some of these high fenced areas and repopulate the area where it came from but they have a lot of these these animals in texas now that are actually huntable species even though they're exotics yeah i mean it's uh it sounds like a a whole lot of effort to not not only save a a animal from extinction but also uh be able to create habitat for the animal to to thrive and survive in here right it just seems uh, seems like you should always have something in your back pocket even if it goes against the the natural ways, because the natural way didn't work, obviously there was, there was too much poaching or, or whatever. Right. So always have a, always always have a culture in your back pocket. Well, that's uh, that's very cool. Thank you to Cole Reed for joining us on the Deer Hunting Podcast. And Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week this week? Yeah, just just getting into a little bit about the Chubby Tines Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms. Bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444-morsessportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods. Uh, you know, your your feed and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of guys put out feed and they, they put it out in uh, a deer feeder or a, a timing feeder that disperses a certain amount. You know, make, make sure there's value to that. And, and what I mean by that... Uh, you, know, you can research what exactly a deer needs as far as protein, mineral, salt intake, all the nutrition that a, a white-tailed deer would need. And if you take the time to research that, then you can apply that research and that knowledge into what you're purchasing to, to put out for feed. Now, if you, you're there's times where you could be wasting your money because some of the stuff that you buy it has nothing that even has any value to a deer's nutritional factors, and it just you know pretty much a, a filler. You're just giving it to the deer; they're getting full on it, and that's all it's doing. So make sure that you do your research on uh, what kind of feed that you're purchasing. You know, every feed bag has a, a nutritional tag on it. Right. 
which tells you, you know, tells you all what all the ingredients are. And if you can take a, you know, an evening or two and do some research and write some things down, that's, you know, obviously protein, mineral, do your research, figure out what the deer need, and then apply that to your purchases. And it should make your, your herd healthier and grow bigger antlers. Very nice, man. And that's that's actually one of the uh, a topic that we, we kind of touched on during the interview, which was kind of neat, is that if you can, you know, the deer might grow antlers, but the density might be relative to the nutrition. And I think you brought up a great point there. Be, be kind of, be aware and do some education um, and educate yourself about what you're putting into your deer herd if you are in fact supplementing the herd yeah it's it's uh it's amazing how how education as far as nutrition is free it's available at a finger's tip or click away right um you just you know google search it and do some research on it and and education is free when it comes to nutrition as far as keeping a healthier herd very nice man very cool well, Dusty, this has been another fantastic episode. I'd like to say thank you to all of our sponsors, including Morse Sporting Goods for sponsoring the Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. I'd also like to say thank you to Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, Covert Scouting Cameras, the Horny Buck Seed Company, and the Euro Hanger. All those products we get behind 100%, and we can't do this show without them. So we sincerely appreciate their support. It's really, really a blessing. Dusty, where can we find you when we're not in the studios talking about deer hunting? You can shoot me an email, Dusty at BigBuckRacery.com. You can look me up on Facebook, Chubby Tines Outdoors, or shoot me a follow request uh, at Chasing Antler on Instagram and Twitter. Jay, where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic? Well, I, th- I think uh, likewise the best place is an email, Jay at BigBuckRegistry.com. You can contact me for there for all types of aspects of the show, whether it's you, you like it and want to see a certain guest or you want an improvement or you want to participate in the harness program. All of it is available uh, through contacts with me, Jay at BigBuckRegistry.com. If you'd like to just join us as a group in general, you can visit our Facebook page. That's Facebook.com forward slash BigBuckRegistry. If you'd like to submit a buck, it's BigBuckRegistry.com forward slash MyBuck. And all the instructions will be right there on how to get your buck featured in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans on our Facebook page. We're also on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We are on YouTube, and on YouTube, you can do a couple things. We've been doing this live show on Thursday nights. We did skip one, but we will be back. So check us out live Thursday nights on our Facebook page around 8.30 p.m. Eastern. And if you'd like to see our past episodes, you can go to our YouTube channel. All of those are listed right there. But you can also get an audio version or or a video version of our audio relative to our podcast so you can listen to all of our shows right there on youtube and that's bigbuckregistry.com forward slash youtube other than that you can listen on stitcher blueberry tune in radio iheart radio and the lipson channel and we're also on the outdoor podcast channel i think that's everywhere we're at my friend that's a whole lot of big buck jay sure is man i'm jay scott i'm dusty phillips and this is the big buck registry's deer hunting podcast we'll see you next week can't wait